everyone. Welcome to the LBC Podcast, where we explore Christian theology and practice for the building up of God's family. I'm your host today, John Harrell. Have you ever wondered, is gender really just a social construct? Do you find yourself sometimes confused about our culture and the way that it talks about human sexuality? Or maybe you find yourself frequently looking around at the culture and looking around at society, simply shaking your head and wondering, how in the world did we get here? Well, on today's episode, we wanted to share a message from our annual Thinking Biblically conference. Back in September, our high school and junior high ministries gathered for a weekend of worship and teaching. This year's topic was Thinking Biblically about transgenderism. What was shared at that conference was so good, we wanted to bring it to you to help you understand what God's Word has to say on the topic of sexuality and transgenderism, and to equip you to lovingly share God's truth with others who may be confused or struggling to understand themselves. Just a disclaimer, this topic is obviously of a mature nature, so if you have young ones around, again, it might be best to find time when you're alone to listen. Use your best judgment. Now, the speaker that you're about to hear is Johnny Artavanis. Johnny is the Dean of Campus Life at the Masters University and the host of the popular podcast, Dial In with Johnny Artavanis. It was such an honor and a pleasure to have him with us. He's passionate about the gospel and God's word and desires to see people understand and obey it, as you're about to hear. So let's listen in together and see what God has to say about human sexuality and transgenderism. Amen. Well, I want to set the scene for you. Not many years ago, uh, America was a land of Christian values. The typical family found themselves within a church pew on a Sunday morning. There were those, of course, that didn't go to church, but they were kind of just apathetic to it. They were indifferent. The winds, you could say, were at the backs of Christians. Fifty years ago, my grandpa was a Cadillac salesman in Santa Monica. And for him, being a Christian was good for business. You know why? Because you could trust Christos Artavanis. He's an honest man. He's a Christian. He's a deacon. Being a Christian was good for business, good for job applications, and good for university applications. But those winds that were once at our backs are now blowing steadily in our faces as those who were once indifferent to the claims of the Bible have become indignant to the thought that an invisible God gets to determine, gets to determine their morality, their choices, their body, and their sexuality. Your dollar bill might say, in God we trust. But if you trust in what the Bible says about your body and about your sexuality, you will be detested, despised, and undesired in the workplace, in universities, and in your neighborhoods. And I want to give you a flavor for this, and I want to point you to the hearings of a man named Russ Vaught. He was applying for the position of the Deputy Director of Management and Budget, and he was being cross-appointed or examined by a senator. And I want you to listen to this dialogue. It's a, a government interview, and here's what the senator says. I understand you are a Christian, but the United States is not composed of people that are just that. I understand it's a majority religion, but there are others of different religions here and around the world Do you think that those who are not Christian are to be condemned? So he's being interviewed, and this is the senator saying, so you're a Christian, do you think that people that aren't Christian are to be condemned? This is a theological question and has no place in a governmental interview. This is an illegal question. Russ Vaught responds and says, thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. The senator responds and says, you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and stand condemned? Do you think that's respectful of other religions? Just pause right here. What the senator is referring to is that Russ Vaught had written a piece for a Christian high school on the centrality of Jesus Christ and salvation. It's brought up at his governmental interview, and the senator is asking, do you think that's respectful of other people? And Russ responds and says, sir, I wrote a post based on being a Christian for a Christian school on the centrality of Jesus Christ. And you can watch it on YouTube. Here's what happens. The senator looks left, he looks right, puts his arms across the table, and just says, ladies and gentlemen, I would simply like to say that this man is not what our country is all about. That senator's name is Bernie Sanders, and he was votes away from becoming the most powerful man in the world. And he says that if you think that Jesus is central to salvation, you're not what America is all about. Get out. Because the exclusivity of Jesus Christ are fighting words. You think you're right and I'm wrong? You think your way is the only way to heaven? Now, these words have always been hard 
and they have been words that have been rejected. But the interesting thing is that some 10 years after that, you know, five, seven years after that interview, what we're fighting words seven years ago about Jesus being the only way to God, much less are considered and deemed fighting words today. In fact, the opening words of the Bible are deemed fighting words by the environment you live in. The Bible is no longer controversial as it pertains to Jesus and salvation. It's controversial from the start. In fact, from the very first words, and you know this in Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, who? God created the heavens and the earth. And then we move down in that chapter in verse 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. And then this might be one of the most controversial statements of our cultural climate. Verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The opening verse of the Bible defines reality as it really is. God is the ultimate authority over everything because he made everything. And not only is he the creator, he is the designer. And he designs in such a way with determinative and absolute envisionment. It displays his glory and is for our good and for human flourishing. And because there is a great design, there is a great purpose in the following verse in Genesis 1.28. He says, be fruitful and multiply, male and female. It's amazing. I've been to some pretty remote corners of the earth and people that don't have the Bible in their own language and somehow without the Bible, they've still figured out how to make babies because it's so obvious from the way God has made us and designed us that they figured it out without ever reading God had made them male and female and hearing the command to be fruitful and multiply. Well, the world that you live in Today is a different type of world. A simple search in the last few days for me uh, reveals this. In the last year, a new Dove soap commercial created on Mother's Day. It interviews various mothers on the beauty of motherhood. And as the commercial is reaching a conclusion, uh, there's one final mother, but you look at it and go, this is a little different. And it's because it's a transgender woman with long hair, She's six foot two, and she's talking about the beauty of motherhood. And it says, we can define motherhood no matter how or however we would like. And then it says, Dove Soap, be you. Or the recent Pantene commercial that features a transgender girl. She transitioned, her name is G. She transitioned from being a boy to a girl who has grown out her hair. And she's so thankful to be using the conditioner of Pantene because it allows her to feel like she fits in, quote, with all the other girls, Pantene soap, be who you are. Or today I watched a recent Gillette commercial that features Samson Brown, a transgender male who is showcasing the first time he shaves with his father. She's a former girl. And because of the hormones that have been pumped into their body, the commercial starts, and I now feel like I finally belong, and rehearses with the father, okay, south, south, north, north, east, west, I'm finally a man, because the hormones that have been pumped into Samson have finally created facial hair, or the Sprite commercial I watched today, that features a teen boy having makeup applied by a loving mother who then puts on a racy dress to go perform a drag show with the Sprite tagline, be who you are. What an interesting environment, right? To say, be who you are in a world that has denied any objectivity or grounding for who you really are. Before we proceed, I want to establish a use of terms and definitions that we employ because I think sometimes, especially in a church context, we can get lost amongst the vernacular. And so I think before we proceed, I want to kind of define at least what culture is using. 
Number one would be sex. And that is God has made us, biologically speaking, God has made us male and female in his image. God has knit the difference between male and female down to the level of our chromosomes, male XY chromosomes and female XX chromosomes. Our primary characteristics would obviously be different organs, but then there'd be secondary differences that would include our body shape, our level of emotion, and our voice. We'll talk about this more moving forward. Uh, secondly, gender. For our purposes, cultural association come, that comes along with biological sex would be gender. And I was talking with Eric today, and this might be, I want to introduce some, what may be some new words, but if you're taking notes, I want you to understand them because they're important. You might hear the term, especially as it's argued, cultural or social construct. And I want to explain what I mean by that and what culture means by that. Now, for instance, when they have a gender reveal party, um, they do, they fill a water balloon up and they throw some darts and something like that. Biologically speaking, that baby has a fixed sex when it's born. Now, gender-wise, there are certain things that we attribute to that sex that aren't necessarily objective. When a water balloon that signifies a boy at a gender balloon or a gender reveal party, it's going to be likely what color if it's a boy? Blue. And what color if it's a girl? That is not, that is not objective. That's subjective. Just like 800 years ago, the most manly man in the world, his name was William what? Wallace. A baller, right? He shows up on the scene if he walks in the back of church. He's wearing what we would look at and say, why is this guy wearing a skirt? but because he's wearing a kilt and only mighty warriors will kil wear kilts. And so the difference is that would be something that would be a cultural construct of gender, what they wear, the colors that are associated with them. And culture is trying to distinguish the difference between those gender norms and biological sex. So that's trying to be severed where biblically, just to pause, we would say gender and sex are the same thing but then there are often connotations that you go, that's not necessarily objective. I'm colorblind, but I think I like blue. But that doesn't mean I'm more or less of a man. Second, thirdly, gender identity. Males and females that have an internal psychological feeling of whether they are male or female. This is their internal self-perception. I feel like I'm a certain way. And this leads to number four, gender dysphoria. An understanding that someone has an incongruence with their biological sex. A man that looks like a man, smells like a man, but feels like he is a female. And that incongruence that he feels produces an anxiety, a depression, an alienation, because there is this misalignment that doesn't line up with reality. Number five would be transgenderism, which is a large umbrella term. Um, that means that your gender does not align with your biological sex. And not only do you have a sense of gender dysphoria, but now you're identifying as a different gender than the one that you grew up in. And this can go as far as just saying, hey, I no longer identify as a man, even though I'm a woman. And it can go all the way to the degree of taking hormonal therapy, taking a new pronoun, having a new body under the knife of intense surgical procedures. Then there's also those like Miley Cyrus, who say that she's a pansexual or she's a non-binary. Hannah Montana, great influence. She is, says that I am neither and sometimes I'm gender fluid. I go back and forth. You can't peg me one way or the other. And this is why MasterCard released a new card that you don't have to have an identity at all. In fact, if you change your sex or change your gender, oftentimes, it's not like when my wife got married to me, her name went from Katie Peters to Katie Artavanis. If you decide you want to change your name because you are switching genders, that's a much more difficult process than just getting married. So MasterCard's new marketing is you can have your true name. MasterCard. Get your true name. And that's because whether you're gender fluid, non-binary, Pick a name that's so ambiguous that whatever you feel like on that current day, let's say your name is G. And that's why many people now in this community go by one letter. Because depending on what they feel like, it's always going to fit. We're tracking so far? It's a lot. How do we get here? How do we get here? Well, um, it's interesting. I was talking to uh, Carl Truman, uh, when he visited the university, and I like the story that he 
told, he said, if I told my late grandfather in 1960 that I am a, a woman trapped in a man's body, he would have laughed at me and sent me to the psycho ward. But if you tell the same type of environment that today, they have deep compassion for you. And unless you take radical measures to make their feelings line up with their body, you are intolerant and have a phobia of someone else's identity. Now, for hundreds of years, Western society lived under the banner of a Judeo-Christian worldview. Judeo just means even people that have Jewish faith, they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but there's still this idea that God is the creator and he made all things. And because there was this idea that God created the heavens and the earth, there was a telos, which means purpose. There was an overall goal and objective for why God made everything. And Western culture, including the generation of your grandparents, probably likely still was under this banner, they grew up with this idea that nature and everything in it was God's handiwork. It reflected his purpose. And as the church fathers used to say, God gave us two books. He gave us the book of God's world, the heavens declare the glory is of God, and he gave us the book of God's word. And God's world and God's word work together like a confluence, which is when two rivers come together to show us that we are not here by accident in the universe. We have been made and crafted, we woven and fashioned by God. And it's evident that we can look at anything, watch planet Earth, and see that living things are structured for a purpose. You grow up in this environment, if you're at a public school, where your teachers are going to tell you that eyes are they're just coincidentally for seeing, or fins are for swimming, wings are for flying, ears are for hearing. But the Bible says that was made by God, for God, and to God's glory. Everything, each organ God created is exquisitely adapted to the others, and all organs, all cells, all anatomy, all joints work together in a coordinated, goal-fashioned purpose to achieve the glory of God. And this type of you know, integrated structure is the hallmark of intelligent design. Now, even today, atheists who are geneticists, they talk about the DNA as a library or a, a pool of information. And all of this formation implies a mind, a mind that is capable of designing things. When you look and you watch the news or turn on planet Earth, Everything that you're seeing up until maybe 50 years ago, there was an understanding that everything, all the databases, all the minds, all the science, the fact that you're right now tilted 23.5% on the Earth's axis, and we are 1.5 million miles away from where we were yesterday. Do you know that? You might be in Bakersfield, but you're 1.5 million miles away from where you are yesterday as you circle the, the atmosphere and you're spinning 11,000 miles an hour as you travel. And we would look at that and go, man, there must be an intelligent design. And because there's a design, there must be a mind. And in the Greek world, that's called the logos. And when we look at the Bible, we see that in the beginning was the logos. The person that made the world and the intelligence behind it is not an abstract, impersonal force. He's a man. And that man came and took on flesh, dwelt amongst us. And the one who causes all things to happen, created all things, sustains all things in Hebrews 1 by the word of his power, he is the one that orchestrates and he is the grand composer of the symphony of life. And that is the Western Judean or context for which many people grew up. But that began to change, and there's a lot of different places for where you could start, but I think for, if you're a high school student, I think the easiest place to start is by talking about a guy named Charles Darwin, and this is going to be important because I want to develop how we got here, and unless you understand this, you're likely going to miss out on much else. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was published in 1859, and here's what historian Jacques Brazen notes. He says, the denial of purpose is Charles Darwin's distinctive contribution to science. Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists in the last few hundred years, agrees and says, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process was, was which, that which Darwin discovered. And his whole goal is that there is no purpose. There is nothing. There's no design. There's no creative, intelligent maker of heavens and earth. And because of this, the logical things that flow, I want you to think with me, and I know this is a little deep, but if you miss this, you miss the world that you're living in because everything about the school system you're a part of is a product of these realities. Because there's no intelligent design and there is no creator, there can be no such thing as truth, 
right? There is no such thing as truth. You live in a world where the only absolute is that there is no absolute truth. People understand this. That's why the Russian chess grandmaster, one of the smartest guys in the world, says that the purpose of modern propaganda is to totally obliterate the idea of objective reality. And that's the world that you live in. So if there is no truth, there is no longer a basis for morality. Charles Taylor explains, the cosmos is no longer seen as the embodiment of meaningful order which can define the good for us. What we are witnessing is a meltdown of all fixed categories. So if there's no truth, the world as you know it, it, it has to evolve. There's nothing that can be objective. That's why there's a commercial that I watched last week that now there's, they want to do away with the terms husband and wife and term that they, they uh, kind of presented for a gay couple is husband, literally. And so when you take away truth, you take away all fixed categories, all fixed terms, all fixed definitions. So there's no design. And if there's no design, here's where we go. Then sex, gender, and marriage are just social constructs or ideas. A social construct is something that people just made up collectively, and it's become so deeply embedded within our society that we begin to look at it as the law. But this is not what the world wants that we live in. Here's what one trans activist says. He says, the oppression of the binary, that's male and female. When you think about binary, it's just two by two. Binary is the idea of male and female. He says, the oppression of the binary will continue from us. As long as doctors hold up a baby and say it is a boy or girl, we want them to hold up the baby and say it is biologically male or biologically female. And it says as long as they hold it up and say it's a boy or a girl, we will continue to gather forces. We're going to just, we'll burn, we'll burn it down. Now, since there is no truth and no design, there is no guidepost. And if evolution is true, then there is no stable universal human nature and therefore no stable morality, because if nature does not reveal God's will, then it is morally neutral realm where humans may impose their will on everything. So then here's what happens. Even though biologically, physiologically, chromosomally, and anatomically males and females are counterparts to one another, when you eliminate creation, you eliminate design and purpose and function. And because there's no intelligent designer, you can be the one who designs what you want your body to look like and what your gender is determined by what you feel with your mind. The psychologizing of the self happens and then that fuels the runway for the plasticity of the body. I'm just a piece of Play-Doh and whatever I feel like, I'm gonna mold and fashion my body to match my mind. Now, what's the logical flow? Well, if there's no purpose and there's no design, then there is also no identity. Up until maybe a hundred years ago, or if you just think back in the garden, you understood that you were made in the image of God. And if you're made in the image of God, you are God's child. You understand your purpose you understand that you've been cared and crafted for. In Ephesians 2, it says that we have been created by Christ Jesus for good works. He is our crafter. It says in Psalm 139 that he knit us together in our mommy's womb. God is so mindful of us that his omniscience penetrates even the darkness of a mother's womb. And he knew you in your embryonic form. And this fuels an understanding of our identity. But when you eliminate that reality and you do away with those categories, you have no identity. And so you're searching and starving for a new identity. God made you to have an identity, to find an identity, and to know I'm a child of God. But here's what happens. Because you have no identity, you go and seek identity. And because of the influence of Darwin, Marx, and another famous philosopher named Sigmund Freud, he says that your identity now, and this is what we're seeing more and more, your identity first and foremost begins with sexual desires and appetites because your identity now is fixed by your desires and what you desire ultimately is to run from pain and pursue pleasure and people are most happy when they dive headlong into sexual gratification. So therefore, I am most me when I am most sexual. And he says this begins even at infancy. So in the world you live in, Sex is not a behavior. Sex is 
who you are. Sexual revolution meant this. In the 1960s in England, you could go to jail if you were a homosexual because it was illegitimate behavior. But the sexual revolution didn't just open up the doors for people to have you know, the broadening of what activity sexually was permissible. What it did is now it created the runway where people don't just say, I have gay sex. What they say is, I am gay. It's who I am. And if you're against my homosexuality, you're not just against what happens in the privateness of my room. You are against me. You are in the same category as a slave owner. You're a racist. You are a bigot. You're an oppressor. And so what happens is the world begins to bond around two terms, victimhood and oppression. Because you're not just against my behavior, you're against everything I am because my identity has been stripped because I have no designer, I have no intelligent creator, I am now my sexual desires at my very core and I am most authentic when I express those desires to the outside world. And this is what Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism. Because people, they, they, we live in a world of posturing and pretend and the philosophers begin to understand this. So now the world you live in is that if you really want to be authentic, which is the word that's like a buzzword, if you really want to be authentic, what you feel on the inside has to be made known on the outside. And you can't just tell people you're kind of into other women if you're a woman. You need to go, I am a lesbian. Come at me, world. And then the world can look at you and go, she's authentic. And that's where people find their identity. Not only that, we live in a world with a dualistic understanding of the body because the body has no set purpose or design. Even during Jesus' time, the Greeks, the Gnostics, used to teach that the body was a material evil. And that's why it was so mind-blowing for them that God would come in human flesh he came in human flesh. But here's what you have to understand. When God looked at the world and said it was very good, you know what type of a world it was? It was a physical one, not a spiritual one. We have our feet fixed, uh, firmly planted in Eden when God looks and says everything is tov ma'ov. It's very, very good. The material world is not something that God is going to do away with. You and I will not be disembodied spirits floating around as wisps for all of eternity. Jesus came as a man. He resurrected as a man. And you know what's going to happen in heaven? We're going to have resurrected and renewed bodies. But the material world now looks at our body as a prison for the mind. And the goal of our bodies is to align with our minds. If you were 30 years ago and you felt a certain way, they would walk you through therapy so that your mind would align with your body. Now they're going to walk you through surgical procedures so that your body will align with your mind. Because the, the body at this point is just seen, right? I mean, think about it. You're a grown-up germ. Your high school teachers think you are a cosmic accident. You're a collection of cells. You're a piece of matter, and because you're a piece of matter, your body doesn't matter. You don't matter. You're an accident. Truly. So get in line with your mind. You understand that even the, all the arguments, this is why worldview is important. It would be bad and inappropriate for me to just start talking on the topics without setting the foundation for the underlying worldview. Abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, you name it, they all come down to the same funnel. Now, it used to be, right, that bioethicists would try to prove to a mother that it was actually a baby within the womb, right? So it used to just be like, no, it's a clump of cells, it's just a fetus, it's nothing, it's a clump of cells. And so that's what justified abortion. Roe v. Wade, it was just a clump of cells, it's a clump of cells. And people still, even Christians, still use that argument. They're like, don't you know it's a real baby? Just to let you know, 99% of bioethicists today believe that it is a human being from the point of fertilization in the womb. They don't deny that. They don't. But here's what they'll say. Let me read this for you. One person says... She says, I realized it was incongruent for me to say it was a baby only because I wanted one. 
The question became for me, was it a person? And so what happens is this lesbian scholar has now done away with and provided a distinction that there is a difference between a, her, a human and a person. Because what makes a human a person is their level of consciousness in their mind. And because they've not achieved a certain amount of intelligence or contribution to society, they can be chopped up, their organs can be harvested, and they can be thrown in a trash can. And that's why people are arguing for what uh, post-birth abortion. What's post-birth abortion? Murder, right? Inside, yeah, exactly. But that's why even people are writing. The guy that wrote Blade Runner, you know it, he wrote a, a book basically on how there's going to be this idea that up until the point of 12, it's this sci-fi novel, and it's saying, yeah, I, got, I had to run away. I'm hiding in the weeds, in the bramble bushes, and there I go, the abortion truck comes to pick me up because I'm under the age of 12 and haven't provided anything for society. And the idea there is, is that there's this dualism between the mind and the body because if the body is just a piece of matter, you don't matter. And there is no morality. There is no truth. That's wrong. Who am I to say it's wrong? People don't use those types of words anymore. There's offensive. There's unsafe. I mean, truly. I mean, I asked a group of students this summer, what would be politically or culturally more offensive? Murdering a baby or going up to a pregnant golden retriever and kicking her in the womb? The dogs. Dogs, right? They're precious. There's more money spent on, on pet toys than there are on the preservation of babies in our country and adoption. It, it's insane. But that's the world that we live in and it all begins to flow from one type of worldview. You're an accident. So then there is no purpose. There is no design. And if there is no design, there is no identity. And if there is no identity, you have no human dignity. And your body is a piece of matter. And if it doesn't matter then it can be chopped up, sliced up, and done whatever you want with so that it matches your mind. So this is called personhood theory, where you assume a low view of the human body which dehumanizes people. Now, this guy Karl Marx comes along, and here's what happens next. Now, in the Enlightenment, what happened is that there were all these philosophers that went away with the idea of God. And then there was another guy named Immanuel Kant that said, well, still, there's this idea that God provides the presupposition. Presupposition just means this. If you believe anything is right or wrong, um, in most environments, I would go and I would say anybody an atheist, and, and people would have, you know, uh, me. To say anything is right or wrong presumes some sort of divine authority and, and, and divine standard for morality. Immanuel Kant came along after the time of Darwin and kind of in that period, and he began to say, well, we still need these presuppositions to determine what's right or wrong. And Karl Marx came along and said, okay, here's what religion is, and this is the world you now live in. Religion is the opium of the people, and religion is used by the rich people so that the poor people, who are basically our slaves, have an eternal bliss to hope for. And so what that means is that we can continue to keep the poor people under our thumb because they're just going, heaven's my home, heaven is my home, heaven is my home. So religion and the idea of God was a tactic to manipulate people. Then Nietzsche comes along, another philosopher, and he's going to say, God is dead. I killed him. And yet we still want to bring him up. And there's all these ideas then that all the philosophy and everything that's happening in school is teaching that you're an accident. And here's where Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche are going to go to the point of going, if you believe in intelligent design, you're an absolute idiot. You're a fool. And you've been brainwashed by your parents. And so when you have multiple generations of people growing up hearing that they're an accident and religion is a drug used by stupid people to get through life, then it's no surprise where we're at today, right? That's where we're at. Now, we talk about LGBTQ+, and we use one term, but what's funny is that LGB is actually totally distinct from the TQ and plus, and, and I'll explain why. The problem of adding T is incoherent to LGB because LGB, lesbian, gay, and bi, they assume a binary for sex. T means fluidity. 
So everything that a lesbian, a gay, or a binary person finds their identity in is that I'm attracted to the same biological sex. T comes along, and there's now this idea that I actually, I don't even know what I am. And actually, what's funny is that feminists have a very hard time with transgenders because the whole thing they've been living and fighting for is women's rights. But now the question is, what's a woman in the first place? So gays and lesbians up until 1980 were on totally different pages. They weren't friends. In fact, being a gay was actually something for elites in Hollywood. But here's what happened. There's a disease that becomes prominent in the 80s, and it's called what? AIDS. And so lesbians and gays unite under this front of victimhood and oppression. They create what's known as the LGB movement. We are all together in this, and no one and nothing is as unifying as a common enemy. And so they have a common enemy. And do you know what it is? The heteronormative family structure. So T is introduced to that. And here's a, you know, the words of a, a lesbian writer who lives now with her partner who transitioned from being female to male. She said this, I was, when my partner, it's two women, began his transition, my lesbian identity that had been central to my life and my sense of self for well over a decade, and I didn't know what his transition meant for me. Some people told me I was still a lesbian, but it was just as obvious to others that I was now straight, or was I bisexual? I wasn't, it wasn't obvious to me at all, and I struggled with it for a long time. Now that I'm a partner of a trans man, as long as I've been a lesbian, I've gotten comfortable just having a name for what I think I am, or I've gotten comfortable just not having a name for what sex I am, what attraction I am. I guess you could say I'm fluid. And that's really where we're at because you live in a world that has been detached from any sort of objective evidence. You can cut your body up. You can take hormones. You can grow out your hair. You can get a buzz cut. You can slice off your breasts. You can take testosterone but do you know what you will never have? You will never have XY chromosomes or XX chromosomes. And here's what trans activists will say. What's the big deal? And not to be crass, but I just that's, that's where I was. I'm obviously always careful. What's the big deal with a little piece of flesh between the legs? Why, does that make, why do we have to make a, such a big deal about it? Here's, I want you to understand how God made you. The average human body has 32.7 trillion cells. Trillion. You don't even know how to write that number down. And every single one of those cells has the chromosomal structure for how God hardwired you. It's not just a little piece of flesh. It's trillions and trillions and trillions of cells that cry out from their creator, I am a man. I am a woman. But beforehand, when it was just the lesbians and gays and bisexuals, the biggest problems that we saw were cake bakers and wedding photographers having to decide whether they would do a gay wedding. But the reality is that gays and lesbians still asserted a gender binary. But when the binary comes to be seen as a social construction designed for the purpose of oppression, everything changes. And at the heart of the debate is because we're all a just a byproduct of evolutionary processes, you now live, you, there's two stories. Nancy Pierce refers to our body's dualism. There's a mind and a spirit, and you are basically in charge of your body based on your feelings and your opinions, and that might move. Now, what Kamel Paglia, a trans activist, says she says, our goal is to defy nature as a trans activist. Why not defy nature? We have absolute control of our bodies and can do with them as we see fit. And the recent law, um, and it went to the Fourth Circuit of Appeals, the GG versus Gloucester County School was ruled a girl who had identified as a boy. It says, and the judge ruling this case, I mean, watch this. It says, a girl who identified as a boy, her birth assigned so-called, sneer quotes, biological sex is female, but her gender identity is male. That's a, a U.S. judge that just put in sneer quotes the idea of biological sex. It's almost like saying, yeah, she was boy, born a girl, 
and dismisses it and says, yeah, like what's that even mean? You now live in a world where chromosomes and DNA are less real and less authoritative than a 13-year-old girl's feelings. So if gender is a social construction, it can be deconstruction, it can be deconstructed and there can be a fluidity. And now people don't want to fit into any boxes and we're moving away from that. Now people ask, well, um, why does this matter? And, and I hope I can ask, answer some of the questions tomorrow because I know I'm kind of just really setting the framework, I, I think, for continuing tomorrow. Why does this matter if it doesn't affect anybody else? Like, why does a transgender person who switches genders or why does a gay couple that gets married have any effect on me? Why should I care? Can't I let them just do their own thing? Well, that's a, an important question um, because any worldview that our country absorbs as legitimate affects everything because marriage, gender, sexuality, do you know what those are? Those are pre-political rights. That's not something that culture made up. You know who made marriage up? God. God looked at everything and said, this is all very good. But there was one thing that was not good. It was not good for what? Man to be alone. And on that day, God gave himself away the first bride. And on that day, God performed the first wedding ceremony. No one got together and said, hey, I got an idea. Let's build like a weird arch with some flowers. Let's call it marriage. No, God made up marriage. Because God made up marriage and he determines sex and gender is a byproduct of sex. Those are pre-political rights. But when people start advocating for it, here's what happens. The state is now the one that determines what marriage actually is. And when something is given over to the state, you'll never get it back. So that's why when people are pushing for gay marriage, what's the difference? What's the difference? Well, now you're giving the right to determine marriage over to someone who didn't make it. God made marriage. What's the problem with someone recognizing sex? Even the recent Indeed commercial I watched today, a tailor on Indeed, which is basically like monster, or what's the other, you know, job fair or whatever. And it's Taylor, who's a non-binary man, six foot four, identifies as a woman. She sits down at an interview and she says, and she sits down with a guy across the table and he, he says, hello, my name is Dorian. My pronouns are he, him. May I ask you what you're comfortable by identifying as? She went, pause. Thank you for asking. Mine are they, them, and my name is T, presently. And it says, indeed, find your job. Now, here's what happens when the state takes power over what's a man, what's a woman, then they'll also take power over what's a husband, what's a wife, what's a parent. And so you're giving power over to someone that didn't actually create or establish what we're talking about at all. Here's what supporters of DOMA, which is uh, basically against uh, gay marriage, and here's what the media presented people that were against those propositions. Anybody that's against us is motivated by animus to disparage, injure, degrade, demean, humiliate, and harm people in same-sex marriage, to brand them as unworthy, to impose disadvantage, a stigma, to deny them equal dignity. We now live in a world where if you don't recognize me, you hate me. Now, here's the difference. In the sexual revolution initially, you might look at someone and say, I disagree with who you, what you do in your bedroom, but I still can have a face-to-face -face conversation with you. When the LGBTQ plus movement wants to be recognized, they're not asking for you to tolerate their private behavior. What they're asking for and demanding and will raise up an army until it happens is for you to affirm and applaud them. There's a difference in recognition. They don't want you to tolerate their behavior. They want you to celebrate their behavior, which is why we don't have straight Pride Month. We have gay Pride Month. And if you don't celebrate, and if you don't put that patch on your jersey, you're a bigot, and you're kicked off the team. Can I just close with this? What do we know for sure? Well, we know for sure God made them male and female, and a man cannot become 
a woman, and a woman cannot become a man. Fifty years ago, that was a no-brainer, and today those are fighting words. Secondly, we know for sure that it says in Second Peter that we are always to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. And then it says this, and to do so with gentleness and respect. Every person is made in the image of God, which means that we must treat them with compassion. Jesus looks at people and he doesn't go, you big idiots. He looks at them and he's distressed and dispirited because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And one of the things that we must distinguish is statistics that define the cultural war from individuals who are made in the image of God. Sometimes when you look at the news, you look at commercials, are you tempted to go, what are they thinking? Well, the Bible tells us what we should be thinking. And it's thank God, would you just please equip me to love you and to shine brightly in a world that's growing dark? And would you open up conversations and doors and would you make my church a place that can become a beacon of truth for people that are this confused? Third, the Bible provides the framework and the vocabulary for why people experience even gender dysphoria, Christians recognize that the fallenness of creation touches every single category of our lives. Meaning that because the world is fractured, Romans 8, we've been subjected to futility. I can totally explain my one person is a, struggles with a disposition towards pornography or alcoholism, and someone else struggles with why they feel like they were born in the wrong body. We live in a broken and fallen world, and one day God will redeem all those things. But one of the things that the Bible tells us is the way reality really is. And what we do when, we don't, when our feelings don't line up with the Bible, we submit our feelings to the teaching of God's word. And that's what every single Christian is called to do. We also need to be skeptical of our own perceptions, knowing that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Fourth, our bodies matter tremendously and immensely to God. You are not, your body is not just a, yeah, to God. It matters immensely to God. And because it matters immensely to God, you will live in your body as is currently formed and fashioned for all of eternity, whether in heaven or in hell. The body, the body matters to God. Matter matters to God. Five, the Christian view of sexuality is not harmful but is for your flourishing and for human progress. Number six, courage, conviction, and compassion is needed. Number seven, we can have the Bible right and have our worldview right, but we can be totally wrong if we live a life that is divorced from a burden for the lost. You can have all of the dots connected for what's happened, what's happened, here's what led to this, here's what led to this, here's what led to this, and that's why you're feeling the way you're thinking. You can have all those dots right and be totally wrong if you're not just burden for the lost. So what do we know? God made them male and female. That's not going to change. And all of nature cries and testifies to that reality. What do we know? Man is sinful. Should we be surprised? Not at all, right? Not at all. This is the way the world is. Am I pessimistic? No. Am I optimistic? Well, here's what I know. Jesus is building his church. And the church was promised in John 15, hatred from the world. And we've lived in unique times from a historical perspective. And now we're going into very clearly a time where not only is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ going to seem bigoted, but when you say, hey, son, target client or checkout register is going to go, how do you know he wants to be a boy? That's going to seem bigoted. So we're walking into a different world, which is all the more reason for you to be biblically equipped, Right? not just to defend the truth, but proclaim it. Let me pray for us. God, there's obviously so much more that we could say on this subject. I hope this was just a helpful uh, precursor for tomorrow to talk about these realities more. God, I'm so thankful for your word. In a confused world, we have clear teaching from God who cannot lie. We're so thankful for that, Lord. I pray for any people in here that are battling this individually or know someone else that is, would they lovingly and compassionately point them towards your truth? Lord, I'm just thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, that every single person uh, can be made right with him. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says that homosexuals, sexually immoral, 
do not inherit the kingdom of God, not period, but comma, but such were some of you, and you are washed, you are changed through Jesus Christ. You are in the business of saving sexual sinners, of which I'm included. And Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that you've saved me, and you can purify us, you can restore us and redeem us, and that in heaven there will be no sin, no dysphoria, but only absolute confidence in who you've made us to be for your glory and for our good. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Amen. Well, I hope that was as beneficial for you as it was for me. You know, it's such a good reminder there as Johnny was finishing up. It's such a good reminder for all of us that knowledge and understanding should lead us to live lives of truth and love, compassion. If you're looking for more, if you want to hear more, you can listen to the other two conference sessions by going to our website, laurelglenn.org, or you can go through our app. Simply go to Sermons and find Thinking Biblically under the archived sermons. If there's anything shared here that struck you, or if you need someone to talk with further, please contact our church office anytime our staff would love to meet with you. The LBC Podcast is a ministry of Laurel Glen Bible Church in Bakersfield, California. Hey, if you're looking for a church family, we would love for you to worship with us in person. Our services are every Sunday, 8.30 a.m. and 10 a.m. And we also have connection classes where you can go deeper in the Word during the 10 o'clock hour. We have all kinds of Bible studies, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies. We have a grief group that meets. We have truth recovery ministries. If you have a need, we want to meet it. We have so many things going on throughout the week. If you ever have questions, feel free to contact our church office. Until next time, walk in the grace and truth that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take care.